On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. According to the Financial Times, about a decade or so ago, Brad Pitt was interested in making a film about our next guest. As Washington barrels headlong into another government shutdown, the crisis over democracy is also being felt in a place that used to be synonymous with stable and sensible politics, the United Kingdom. The country has had five prime ministers since it voted to leave the European Union in 2016. Rory Stewart came close to being one of them. He gave Boris Johnson a run for his money in the race to become British prime minister, but he decided to quit party politics in 2019. Rory Stewart now hosts a hugely popular podcast, The Rest is Politics. He's a global ambassador for a charity he set up called Give Directly and has just released his memoir, How Not to Be a Politician. After the break, Rory joins us from New York to talk about his memoir. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. Let's get into the conversation and welcome our guest who joins us from New York. Rory Stewart, welcome to 1A. Thank you very much for having me on. I hope all is well. It is. Well, we'll make time to talk about why the movie never got made. But first, your memoir takes us into the belly of the beast of British politics. In the U.S., British Parliament is best known for the ceremony. (laughs) You were a member of Parliament. What do you want us to know, the people on the outside, to know about life inside Westminster politics? I think I want people to feel uh, in this book, which is called How Not to Be a Politician, that democratic politics in the UK, in the US, and in Europe is not as different as you might think. And that actually politics is a profession that is extremely bad for the people that do it. It's bad for their minds, their bodies, their souls. The ways that you have to campaign, raise money, the ways that you have to communicate stop you from being a normal human being. with very rare exceptions. I mean, there are some people, I'm a, an admirer of a, a congresswoman from from uh, Connecticut called Rosa DeLauro, who I think has managed to retain a sort of private space and integrity. She is a, a kind of recognizable human being. But many, many people who I know in the Senate and Congress from the British Parliament basically become these sort of marble statues. And all they do is spout slogans. And that is very dangerous because... That's no way to govern a country. To actually do government, you have to have critical thinking. You have to have humility. You have to be able to think about nuance and complexity and listen to people's other's, other's ideas. And if you've trained yourself 
almost every hour of the day to simply be spouting attack lines at your opposition. You're not able to do that. How much space and time did you need from your experience in British Parliament to be able to write this memoir? It took me a very long time to get the distance. I mean, the, the, the question of time in politics is fascinating. I, I was a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School before I went into politics. And I remember Mitt Romney stopping by and saying to me, you've got to get your thinking done now. You're not going to have any time to think when you're in politics. That's frightening. And he was, that is frightening. Totally terrifying. And I, I know he was absolutely right. I spent the next 10 years working 120 hours a week, and I did not have time to think, step back and think. And I came out of it, I mean, maybe traumatized is too, too grand a word, because I, I don't want to minimize people who've been through extreme traumas in their life. But I found it a very difficult, unsettling experience. And for me particularly, I was trying to fight against the rise of populism in my party. I was, I guess... Uh, you know, what What in your terms would be a kind of moderate centrist. And I found the British Conservative Party lurching to the right with Brexit and Boris Johnson and this new populist culture war world. And I really thought, this is what I have to beat. This is what I have to take down. I have to stand up for a different tradition in politics. I have to stop a no-deal Brexit. I have to stop Boris Johnson. And I didn't manage to do it. And it's been three years of very painful reflection on trying to understand how I failed, why people like me who claim to speak for the center ground failed, why we now find ourselves in a much more divisive politics, not just in Britain, but obviously in the U.S. and right the way through Europe. When Mitt Romney said to you, get your thinking done now, did you hear it at that point as as a warning or as something else? I don't think I processed it properly. I mean, it's so difficult before you go into a job to really listen to people's warnings, to really understand what it's going to be like. I, I don't know whether you've had that experience in your own life, but, yeah. but you know, I mean, it's, it's, and it, it sounds ridiculous now uh, to say that I went in and I discovered that politicians were unbelievable backstabbers. <laughs> this is a ridiculous thing to say, right? But until you've actually experienced it, until you've seen people that you've worked with for almost 10 years and who you thought passionately shared your values and you'd worked with on committees and you worked in government, suddenly putting out videos endorsing Boris Johnson when you know that they think he's a terrible human being, that he's going to be a terrible prime minister. Until you've seen that, it's very difficult to process in your mind how strange that is, and the kind of damage I think it does to them. What I hear you describing is what perhaps feels at once as a personal betrayal, but also an institutional betrayal. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I, I don't know, I wouldn't presume to get my head around what Republicans who endorse Donald Trump are going through, but it, it feels similar to me from a distance. I mean, I'm hoping that American readers reading How Not to Be a Politician will see it as a sort of parable or another way of looking at US politics from a different angle, because it's about a party being taken over by a very dangerous, irresponsible ideology. And it's about the ways that the elite facilitates that. That the truth of the matter with populism is that it always happens because in the end, 
the more moderate figures in these parties decide to throw their weight behind these extremists. Let's spend a moment talking about what's happening in the UK right now. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced he's watering down some of the UK's net zero goals. Earlier, he told the BBC it's tied to his desire to have a, quote, honest conversation with the country. Transitioning to net zero isn't going to be easy. It's going to require all of us to make changes in how we live our lives. But we can do that. And I believe people do want to make those changes, by the way. But people want to do it in a proportionate, pragmatic and realistic way. That's the approach that I'm putting in place. And compared to what's gone before, I don't think it's right to chase the short-term headline, to just assert some goal for the future without a clear plan to deliver it and without being honest about what's being required to get there. What do you make of this move? Well, it's heartbreaking. So the, the backstory is that the UK, when I was in government, I was the Environment Minister and then I was the Secretary of State for International Development in the Cabinet. We were very proud of Britain taking a lead on climate change. So we were one of the first nations to sign up to net zero. And we signed up to 2030 as the date, so seven years time, six and a half years time, as the date when we would only sell non-petrol, non-diesel vehicles. The idea was in six and a half years' time, you would not be able to buy a petrol or diesel vehicle anywhere in the United Kingdom. It was the right thing to do ethically. It was the right thing to do economically. We're giving car owners and automobile manufacturers due warning, and we were seeing amazing things. Our factories were beginning to transform. Car manufacturers were beginning to make those investments on the assumption that in seven years' time, you could only buy an electric vehicle. And now Rishi Sunak has pushed that date out. And look, he does it in very reasonable language. You can, you can hear the strange thing about it, which I think is difficult to communicate to an American audience. He doesn't sound like Donald Trump, does he? He sounds very kind of moderate and reasonable. And, you know, I believe in this stuff, but we just got to take it more slowly. But the truth of the matter is, he's just kicked the can down the road by another five years and has completely upset all the planning for our green transition. We're heading to a quick break, but we'll be back with our conversation with Rory Stewart in just a moment. Stay with us. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. This message is brought to you by Wondery. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura protects residents from global catastrophes, but a dark secret threatens Pura's very existence. Binge all episodes of The Last City ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Let's get back to the discussion. As someone who's been inside politics, and I suppose I'm asking you to be a, a bit of a mind reader, or at least to read the politics for us, why move in this direction in the face of the various climate-driven crises we're facing across the globe right now? The, the problem that the British government faces and most governments around the world face is that the most efficient way to do an energy transition 
is to tax energy. So the way you really get people to convert from petrol or diesel or stop using carbon to heat their homes is by putting a high tax on it. And the problem with that is it hits the poorest people hardest because the poorest people are the people whose highest proportion of their income is the fuel in their vehicle or the heat for their homes. So what he's responding to is that there are many working class middle-class voters in the United Kingdom who feel that the climate transition is hitting them hard in the pocket. You know, people around the edge of London now are having to pay nearly $80, $80 US dollars a week more to drive their vehicles when these low emission zones are brought in. So the challenge that we need to face, I think, around the world is how do we do this energy transition without making the poorest people in the country bear the cost of that? And I think the answer is, and this is something that I, 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 I'm... Uh, the senior advisor would give directly, which is this organization that does unconditional cash transfers. And I really believe that what we should be doing is giving the cash to poorer people to cover the costs of that transition. Uh, the incentives, of course, you know, the more they transition, the more of that cash they can keep. But if they can't quite make that transition, if they can't afford to get that new vehicle, at least they have a bit of a buffer. So if you were still in office and you could have a sit down with Rishi Sunak, what would you say today? I would say that to do the energy transition, we cannot do it by trying to bully the poor. We have to do it by putting taxes on wealthier people, including wealth taxes. And in some cases, we have to borrow more money. But it's expensive. I mean, let, let's not kid ourselves. Totally converting the energy of a country is expensive. We've done the easy stuff in Britain. We've got rid of coal which is great, and you know, we've moved to gas and that massively reduced our carbon emissions. But the next stage of it, which is getting rid of all combustion engine-driven vehicles, that's a big lift. The US has nowhere on that. And I would like Britain to be leading the world on that, but we need to do it in a way that is, is affordable for people. As we've heard um, in, in our conversation, you're not shy about your views of former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. In your book, you recall being asked by a fellow member of Parliament what you thought of him, and you replied, Johnson was, quote, a chaotic, tricky con artist, entirely unfit to be Prime Minister. Why did your party, the Conservative Party, pick him over you? Because they thought he could win. They thought he would appeal to a base. And he was doing something very unusual. I mean, traditionally, British politics had been in the center ground for a long time since the early 1990s. You know, Tony Blair was very much the third way politician. David Cameron and the Conservative Party went into coalition with the Lib Dems. It was all about fighting in the center ground. And Boris Johnson said, we don't need to do that. We can abandon the center ground. We can abandon moderate voters and we can build a base, mostly from working class people in former industrial areas with strong anti-immigrant views. And we can win that way. And they sensed his popularity. He was a celebrity. I mean, he was probably the most famous person in British politics. He'd been a television personality. So I was saying, this is a terrible human being. He's going to be a terrible prime minister. And they were saying, we don't care. We think he can win. I can only imagine what it was like going through that process and watching or, or un coming to the understanding that Boris Johnson was, was going to be the choice of your party. How did that fundamentally change how you thought about the Conservative Party, but also about British politics overall, when, when Boris Johnson was the choice? Well, I think it, it 
revealed something very rotten and sick in the Conservative Party, that it exposed the the um, the myth that people like me have been living on. I mean, I was the far left of the Conservative Party. I'm many ways left of the Democratic Party in the United States. I was a strong, you know, I, I led the introduction of some of our environmental policy. I championed doubling our spend on environment and climate. I voted for gay marriage, massive increases to international development assistance. And I felt that that was all consistent with being a conservative. And then I saw my party lurch off to this right. And, and I think I realized that it's not just about Britain. This phenomenon of populism has been going since 2014. It's Narendra Modi in India. It's Poland, it's Hungary, it's Marine Le Pen, probably being the next president of France from a neo-fascist party. And, and of course, we can see what's happening in the United States. So it, I, I think it was deeply revealing of the problems. Yeah. Was it apparent to you in that moment that you needed to exit politics or did you, did you have a, a, at least a glimmer of hope that you could stay in and do to your mind some good? Well, it was, uh, I mean, I started by running to be prime minister against Boris Johnson, and there were very optimistic moments. I was leading in the public opinion polls with the general public, not with the conservative base, with the general public. I was, I was more popular than he was. And I was doing well in the initial TV debates and stuff. But once I'd lost, once he had taken over, the kind of politics he was doing was nothing that I could sign up to. I was not prepared to go into another election and stand as a conservative with this man as my leader. And I think it is important in politics to be able to draw lines. Now, I've been criticized a lot for it, as you can imagine. Many people say, you should have stayed inside the tent. You should have kept pushing for reform from within. But I think there are just moments where you don't do that, where you have to say, this is a morally reprehensible person. He is eroding the British constitution, which is a strange unwritten constitution that he was playing Mary Hell with, and I will not be associated with him. You write in the book about how miserable your life as an MP became. How are you reflecting now on on what got you to such a low point in your life? I think I, I, I reflect on it in two ways. I think one of them is a classic story that everybody probably can relate to, which is that particularly someone like me who went into politics late in life, I'd not been a member of a political party. I came in as a guy who'd been a diplomat and worked in Iraq and Afghanistan and written books and been a Harvard professor. And I came in a very idealistic way. I wasn't very interested in tribal party politics. I was interested in going into government and I became the environment minister and the prisons minister and this kind of stuff. And so partly it's a story about the collapse of ideals. It's about learning what politics is really like. Um, but it's also, I think, depressing because it's a sort of introduction to the limits of what can be achieved. I mean, I think one of the problems that I face, and I think people in the US do too, is is what is the limit to what you can do? How can you change the world? We got this comment from Kit who says, in spite of everything, the UK has much more reasonable politicians than the US. Rory, we heard from our listener before the break who who said <laughs> they think UK's uh, politicians are are more reasonable than those in the US. Your thoughts? I think it's it's probably true, but in the end we all end up as the US. I mean the 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 things that are driving US politics 
social media, the collapse of the traditional media landscape, and increasingly AI are going to come to Britain pretty soon. It's just a question of a slightly different cultural tone. But the reality of the fact is that we've gone from a quite a unified consensus politics to a very polarized post-truth populist politics in the UK and indeed in the whole of Europe. I got a letter from a listener who's also an elected official recently, and um, I won't share their name, but she enjoys the show and but was asking me not to use the term politician on the air, but to use something else like elected official, um, public servant. And for you now on this side of politics, do you see a distinction between being a politician and being a public servant? I think that's one of the big questions. I, I, I think that in politics anywhere, you do need to have a sense of moral values. I mean, it's a pretentious thing to say, or sounds pretentious, and it, particularly from a politician, it sounds hypocritical. But unless you've got a sense of honor, a sense of truth, a sense of integrity, even if it's not absolute, look, we make a lot of compromises, politics, of course, is a dirty business, but you've got to have the ability to say no and try to hold to something. And if you don't, and I'm afraid the majority of my colleagues don't anymore, they've lost that sense of what that inner compass is, the country is in real trouble because you essentially select the policies on the basis of the opinion polls, rather than really trying to do what you'd believe to be the thoughtful, correct thing for the country. We're discussing the memoir, How Not to Be a Politician, with author Rory Stewart. When we return, we dive into some of his other work. Stay with us. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. Let's get back to the discussion and turn now to some of the other work you've done. You're co-host of the very popular podcast, The Rest is Politics, and you, as a conservative, host alongside Alastair Campbell, who was the Labor Party's fearsome director of communications for many years. And you talk about a lot of things on the podcast. As people listening will understand, Asparin is essentially a man purse. And it sort of broadly covers your private parts. Broadly covers private parts. And uh, if you're running, you probably want to move it onto your side hip. Otherwise, it bangs around a lot. And it can then get decorated. So I've got one with goat hair on the front, horse hair on the front. Uh, I found a badger in the road that had been run over. And you that, made it into a sparring? That's a sparring. Did you? Yeah, that's a sparring, yeah. Did you make it? Uh, yeah, I worked with a friend to make it, yeah. How many yeah. sparrows have you got? I've got five. Five, you told me, yeah. I've got three, but only... So the functional point for me is one is the belt broke. The other one, the baubles fell off. 
I've got one with two baubles, missing a third of the other one. Yeah, it looks but if, as long as it's the two there, not no, no, the one no, it's in the, the central one on the one. Oh, well, that's side. a dysfunctional sporin. No good at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No good at all. So this was a bit of an education for me on on sporins. But how did this podcast come to be? You working with someone with this reputation as a fierce labor loyalist. <laughs> Um, it was put together by a, a British footballer called Gary Lineker, famous soccer player. And he thought it would be fun to have. And I, I think it's, it is fun because we live in a very divisive age. And we are from different political parties. We're different ages. We're different class backgrounds. We've got different voices. We're from different regions of the country. And I think people enjoy. I mean, sometimes it gets quite fiery. But most of the time, we try to disagree agreeably is our slogan. Um, but I, I also, you've been very kindly raised Give Directly, and, and I'm, I'm speaking to you from New York, so I'm here for the UN General Assembly. And I just wanted, just in the few few moments we have, to to just bring the subject back to global poverty, which I feel is being so neglected. I'm not sure people understand. They almost sort of began to convince ourselves in the 90s and 2000s that global poverty was disappearing on its own. The truth is that there are over 700 million people in the world at the moment who can't meet their most basic needs, eating maybe once a day, once every two days. And the revolution that we're trying to bring and give directly is something that's counterintuitive, but has been proved by research and academic paper after academic paper that actually the best way of helping somebody in extreme poverty is to give them unconditional cash, to trust them, that it is hugely inefficient and wasteful for people like you and me to travel halfway around the world and try to consult with people, listen to them, and then tell them what they should be doing. It just absorbs most of the money and bureaucracy and salaries and consultations. If you get out of the way and really give money directly to people, it is extraordinary in transforming people's lives. You end up, and I've been to a village on the Rwanda, Burundi border, where you can see electrification doubling, livestock ownership doubling, the roofs all being repaired, latrines being dug, small businesses erupting. All of that for a fraction of the cost of traditional development. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is that we're in a world which is increasingly isolationist. We've got less money for international development. And here's a chance to make that money go much further in a way that isn't patronizing, isn't colonial, but is radically trustful and gives respect to people. When I think about the conversations we often have about poverty and who is poor and why, I would imagine there is a perhaps an intellectual barrier to that type of support, trusting people in poverty to know what to do with with cash. Um, how do you overcome that barrier and say, yes, we can trust people to do what they need to do, what's best for their life and best for their communities? They just need they just need the money. It's very tough. It's very tough. I think the first thing is that the evidence is now amazing. So there are these randomized control trials, which are like medical trials, where you give money to one group and you don't give money to another randomly selected, statistically significant group, and you measure over time, three years, six years, nine years, and the results are staggering. The cash is outperforming almost every other intervention. It's getting better nutrition outcomes and nutrition programs. It's getting better youth business outcomes and youth business programs. And then the second thing, I think, is just getting people to think about it. I mean, if you're living on, you know, I meet people in Rwanda who are literally have $6 cash a month, which they're living on. And if you think about how poor that woman is, and she spent 30 years thinking what she would do if she had a little money. 
she's not going to waste that money. She's going to fix her roof. She's going to get the grandchildren back into school. She's going to get the small business. She's going to get the livestock. She's going to put food on the table. We, we should believe <laughs> that these people know much more than we do what they need and will address those things much more efficiently than we can do for them. You mentioned you're in New York. Um, the UN Secretary General spoke to CNN on Monday. Antonio Guterres was asked how much power he had as leader of the UN. The Secretary General of the United Nations has no power and there's no money. What we have is a voice, and that voice can be loud. And at the same time, we have some convening power. But the power is in the member states. And the problem is that the exercise of that power is today blocked. We have a level of division among superpowers that has no precedent since the Second World War. What role do you think the UN should play in addressing poverty, famine, climate change, if, if any role at all? I think its, its biggest role is political insecurity now. I think the central role that the UN can play is, is trying to do what it can to address. I mean, the Secretary General is completely right. You know, this, this, is, this is a Cold War-style situation which is now emerging. The U.S. Is, is lining up against Russia and China. And there's a very much, there's a you're with us or against us world emerging. And it's not like the 90s. Most of the world is no longer on the side of Britain and the U.S. in the way that it was, I'm afraid. And there are countries, but, but you know, increasingly in Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa and Eastern Europe and the Middle East, you can see people distancing themselves and... So that's the first job of the UN, because we need them. Climate change can only be addressed together. AI regulation can only be addressed together. These aren't things that can be done country by country. When it comes to international development, though, I think, unfortunately, the UN is very bureaucratic. It isn't embracing things like direct cash transfers. There are far too many people working with very outdated computer systems and structures and bureaucracies. It's very difficult to reform, sadly. It's not as nimble as it should be. And we're in a world of isolation where there's less money to go around. So often, I'm afraid, going through the UN systems is not the most effective, rapid way um, of addressing the needs of the extreme poor. If not the UN, Rory, who or what steps into that that gap you're describing? Well, we, we are increasingly looking at bodies like the, the G7 and the G20. There was this big meeting recently in, in Delhi where Narendra Modi brought together the BRICS, which are these emerging economies, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, along with the traditional US, Japan, Germany, Britain, France. And that's where things have to come together. I mean, you know, we should be looking very hard at Britain in November. That's the first big attempt to bring together a big AI regulation meeting, which is going to really matter. I mean, that's moving so fast. Mm. I think people understand in a year, year and a half, what these large language models are going to be able to do for good or for bad. Um, so I think it is increasingly those organizations. But the problem is that there isn't the will. We've all turned inwards. We're all so worried about our own internal politics that people don't have the bandwidth to think about the world anymore. I mean, it makes me very, very sad. If you remember in the 90s and 2000s, we were all working to make poverty history, talking about the end of poverty, the sustainable development goals, churches, trade union movements, the media, celebrities. And the energy has gone out of that. And 
And and that's why, you know, I'm both trying to say we need to reach into the world again because the world is getting more violent. There are more refugees, more conflict. Our leaving the world hasn't made it safer. I was sometimes tempted to feel maybe it would be because I saw in Iraq and Afghanistan the humiliating messes that we created by over-intervening. But tragically, withdrawing has not improved the world. Withdrawing has coincided with a, a, a collapse increasingly into anarchy, chaos, nearly seven military coups in Africa in just over a year. I mean, it, it's it's a very difficult world and the problems are getting bigger and we need to work together. You've also expressed deep concern about what you describe as shallow democracies. How does that fit into these broader concerns about global poverty and instability? I think we were too quick in the 90s to give people a check mark and say, great, you're a democracy. Uh, elections are not enough. You need deeper structures. You need the rule of law. You need deep civil service institutions. And we didn't give people time. And a lot of these democracies that have been toppled by military coups never really delivered for their people properly. So, you know, again, to return to give directly and cash transfer, one of the things it allows you to do is deliver money directly to mobile phones of the extreme poor in Africa without going through governments, without having to worry about these intractable problems of how we fix corruption and governance. It's clear to anyone reading the book how much you think politics needs to change. And we asked our listeners to weigh in on what they think needs fixing first. Hi, this is Adam from Asheville, North Carolina. I think the biggest problem in our political system is dark money. So the first thing I would do if I could make one sweeping change would be to eliminate the pathways for dark money to flow into the political system. Period. End of story. And here's one more from Erica in Colorado. The big change I would make is abolish the first past the post system. The rank choice voting or more of a parliamentary representative style would help kind of tone down the politics that first past the post breeds. What's the one change you would make if you had the ability? Take the power away from the center and drive it down. I mean, I agree with both listeners. We've got to change the financing. We've got to change our electoral systems. But above all, we've got to get rid of this old-fashioned view that a, a few, mostly men, sitting in some capital city are going to try to micromanage the lives of a highly educated, highly diverse population. We need to drive power down to the locals' level. We really need to be serious about empowering citizens. And, and we need to do that partly, I think, through trusting people with unconditional cash. What would take you back into politics, Rory? A belief that I could really change things, a belief that I'm not banging my head against the wall and making myself and my family miserable and achieving nothing. It's, it's seeing the clear path to change. We mentioned at the very top, Brad Pitt wanted to play you in a movie. What happened? So Brad Pitt bought my life rights and I destroyed the movie, which was meant to be about this romantic guy walking across Afghanistan by becoming a conservative politician, which is a rubbish end to a movie. <laughs> and that's that. That's Rory Stewart. He's a writer, former diplomat and lawmaker. He's the global ambassador of the charity Give Directly. And he joined us from New York to talk about his new memoir, How Not to Be a Politician. Rory, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you very much indeed. Bye-bye. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again soon. This is 1A.
Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way, stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.